Take your Bibles this morning and go to the book of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. We began this chapter last week in our study of John's gospel, which has the theme of life in Jesus, the Son of God. All throughout the book of John, John drives us back to this point every time that Jesus is the one who is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. And Jesus is the one in whom we find life, life eternal, life worth living, uh, life victorious over sin is only found in Jesus Christ. And last week, we looked at the passage that probably many of you are familiar with, um, the feeding of the 5,000. It's recorded in all four Gospels. And we looked at this idea of, of Jesus' sovereign power and how he proved through those things that he is the prophet who is greater than Moses, who was promised in Deuteronomy there, and that he is the, the Son of God who, whom the people will find salvation in. And of course, at the end of that passage, you see, um, as it's near the Passover, the nationalistic feelings of the people who were going to take him by force, and as, if necessary, and make him uh, their king their deliverer from Rome, because that's what they wanted in the Messiah. They had their own ideas of the Messiah, and they wanted him on, on their terms. And I, what we said last week is, is that the people of Israel, they didn't need a deliverer from Rome, they needed a deliverer from sin. And that's who Jesus came to be. And so this passage today in, in, in John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21, where we see that Jesus is Lord over creation, takes place immediately following these things, and it's vital and important in the life of the disciples, and it's vital and important in our lives today to see who Jesus is and, and the things that come into our lives. Look there, starting in verse 16 of John chapter 6. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus on the sea, drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Father, we are so grateful now for an opportunity to just take the next few minutes and look at your word together to see what you have for us in these things today. And we ask that you would help us to open our hearts today. Help us not to sit here today and think, well, we, we really hope that, that, that so-and-so is listening to these things. Help us to be listening to these things today. Speak to us personally through your word today. Help us not to be distracted by the things that are going on around us or in our lives, but to hear what you have to show us today. And Lord, I pray for one who may be here today who does not know where they will spend eternity, has put these things off, uh, has seemed not to care about them, um, or, or just uh, has wrestled with them, that you would show them today who you are, that you are a savior from sin, that, that you are the only hope of eternal life. Lord, for Christians today who are struggling with things in their lives, whether it be sin or temptation and trial, that you would show them today that, that you are Lord over all these things, worthy of our trust and our faith and our submission. And we ask that you would have freedom to do your work in our hearts today. We will walk out of this place different than we came in because we have heard your truth proclaimed and you have applied it to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had to learn something twice in your life? Perhaps you needed help with a school subject, 
uh, a new process that was taking place in your place of business, or some other task that you needed to observe and receive training on multiple times before you finally got it. And let's be honest, we've all probably been there more than we want to admit it, right? But what makes these situations more bearable is if you have a patient, willing instructor. And what often makes it worse, if we're honest, is our own stubborn hard-heartedness and hard-headedness in those moments, right? In our spiritual lives, there are incredible parallels to learning something twice in, the, in, in, in your life. Because how many times has God needed to reteach you something in your life? In the midst of the lesson that God is teaching you, you tell yourself, I am not going to ever forget this moment again. Yet when the temptation arises, the trial hits, or the distractions of this temporal life take hold, you forget what God has convicted you of, proven to, and taught you before. It is so easy, I think, when we read the scriptures that we look at, we look at the, these things now, having, having read, read God's recorded word and what has happened. And we think, why don't these people get it, right? But we need to look at ourselves and say, why don't, why don't I get it? Why don't I understand those things? And, and that's where you begin to see the mercy and the grace of God in your life to teach you these things over and over again. I was reminded this past week as I read um, in my devotions um, in Psalm chapter, I think it's 103, where it talks about who God is and what he does for us. And, and I always find that verse very comforting where it says, he, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Um, that's the grace of God. He remembers who we are, and he continues to show us who he is and calls us to continue to trust in him and follow him. And, and, if, and if you have had this, this issue in your life where, where God has had to teach you things over and over again, let me tell you something. You're not alone. All human beings wrestle with that. More than that, all Christians still wrestle with these things. But God is an ever-gracious teacher who continues to lovingly draw us closer to himself. And, and in his sovereign will for our lives... God allows trials and has set forth the way of things and the way the world works to call us to himself. If you're a Christian, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and you follow him as a disciple, this is a call to a proper trust and service to himself that in your life you would continue to forsake sin and you would serve him more wholeheartedly with your life. For one who does not know the Lord there's a consistent message that God sends to you. Forsake your sin and come to me. But in either case, by the way, there is, there is always a call to continue to forsake sin and pursue God. Whether it be for salvation or sanctification. The twelve disciples were those who were closest to Jesus here on earth. I mean, can you just imagine, put yourself in the sandals of these twelve guys. For three years... You get to walk with Jesus and learn from him. They walked with him who is God incarnate. They heard his preaching and teaching. Listen, I'm a pastor. Sometimes people say, wow, you preached really long. Nobody said that to Jesus, by the way, okay? As well, you shouldn't. You can say it to me because I'm not God, okay? And I do preach long sometimes. Nobody says that to Jesus, right? Can you imagine sitting on the side of that hill listening to Jesus preach and teach? 
you imagine sitting and hearing his instruction personally to you as one of those disciples? And by the way, you do hear Jesus teaching to you. It's right here. It's what he has given you and me to know about himself and who we are and how we relate to him. And yet, even though they heard and saw these things, they, 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 they observed his omnipotent power, and they basked in his glory. They still struggled to have faith in him and recognize who he was and why he came. Yet Jesus, in his patience as God, in his mercy and his grace, continued to build their faith through personal, powerful manifestations of his sovereignty, like in the passage we see before us today. What we see here is that Jesus' sovereign power proves he is deserving of our obedience and trust in all circumstances and situations. There is not a point of life that you find yourself in that Jesus is not worth trusting. There is not a moment that happens in your life that God is not in control. There is not any, there's, there's nothing in your life that can separate you from God's love and God's power. And even if the thing you face in your life is because of your sin, that is the moment to turn back to God. And what we're going to see today in the life of the disciples is what they experience in their life that's a very, very trying experience for them. And we're going to see how that what, what, that, what Jesus is doing through that is drawing them closer to himself, helping them. We're going to see at the end of, of the message today. Okay, here, here you go. Here's, you, you'll know this now when, you come, when we come to it. They needed to relearn some things. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to, again, show them who he is, even though they've just observed that. And we're going to do that today by focusing primarily on John chapter 6, because that's, that's where our series is. But we're also going to look today in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark, because Matthew and Mark also record this parable. And if you'll remember, John is the latest gospel that's written. He's written his gospel well after the other three gospels have been um, inspired by God. And so um, he doesn't always include the same information when they overlap. They don't overlap very often. But in this passage, in the passage last week, they did. So what we're going to do today um, is we're going to harmonize a little bit of this. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to read um, what's called a harmony of the Gospels. Is anybody familiar with that or you've seen that before? And what it does is it takes the passage of the Gospels and it puts them together, like where they would have taken place in the life of Jesus or when, when they're talking about the same thing, about the different details. Because you're going to see today that there are things that John records that the others don't record and the things that others record that you think, wow, that's kind of significant, but John doesn't record them. Again, because... It doesn't fit what God had inspired him to write, right? God didn't tell him to, to, put, to write that part. Um, but we're going to see how they all fit together today um, in, this, in this package of, of, of Jesus' sovereign power displayed here today. In the first two verses of our passage, in, in verses 16 and 17 of John chapter 6, you see this divine directive that's given by Jesus. It says, now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over to the sea toward Capernaum, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. So here's the disciples' mission. They are told, we're going to see here in other passages, Jesus has given them direction to go and, and, and to depart from the place where they've been. It stands to reason 
If you were with us last week, or if you have any familiarity with the events of last week, how Jesus fed the 5,000, which really was 15 to 20,000 people, um, and, and people wanted to make him king. They began to see his power. And, yeah, this is great. It stands to reason that after the events of the, that day, the disciples are probably feeling pretty good about themselves and about the mission and the person whom they are following. Because they've been following Jesus for some time. They've been observing what he does, and now, hey, look at that. It's great. He's finally getting the recognition he deserves, right? I mean, let's just be honest. These, these men, are, they don't fully understand who Jesus is and why he came yet. They don't fully understand uh, the, the, the redemption of sin he's going to pay. They still, in their minds, have some of this, this Jewish um, nationalism that they're, that they're working through. And so uh, it seems likely now that what's happening here is Jesus is, is now sending his disciples away to keep them from being swept up in the fanaticism of the crowd. Because these men do not fully yet understand Jesus' mission. He had taught them. Jesus had taught them in Matthew chapter 6. He had taught them to pray for the coming of God's kingdom. But this was not the coming of the kingdom yet. I love the way one author put it. Um, um, his, his name is Phillips. He's a pastor and he's written many commentaries in the scripture. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote. But just, just hear what he has to say. He, that is Jesus, had to consider the ambition of Judas Iscariot, the impetuosity of Simon Peter, the zealotry of Simon the Canaanite, the tempers of James and John. It would never do for these disciples to fall in with the wishes of the crowd and try to force his hand into accepting a crown he did not want and had no intention of accepting. So this is why Jesus sent these disciples, his disciples away. Matthew and Mark record this in their accounts of this incident. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And in Mark chapter 6, immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. So when John records here that the disciples uh, had gotten to the boat, They didn't get in the boat of their own accord. They got in the boat because Jesus told them to. I want you to go to the other side. Mark tells us that they were heading toward the town of Bethsaida. That was the closest town to where they were on this eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. John records for us here that they were headed ultimately to Capernaum, which is across on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It is probably that they were going to Bethsaida, and from Bethsaida, then they were going to Capernaum. And as they departed into the lake, we see that that as they go, Jesus is not with them. So though though we have the the disciples are on a mission, we see Jesus' absence from their presence there. Jesus instead stayed behind to disperse the multitude that had gathered to hear him teach, and that had enjoyed his provision, only then to seek to crown him king. I mean, imagine, if you would, even this is a display of his power as God, because here is one man dispersing fifteen to 20,000 people, telling them it's time, to, it's time to move on. It's time for you to, to go where it is you're going for the night. Matthew and Mark then record for us that Jesus had an important task to undertake. He needed to spend time in prayer. Matthew 14, 23 says, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. Mark 6, 46, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Though Jesus is one with the Father, 
These times of his communion with the Father were vital in his life. And Jesus, as, as fully man and fully God, set the pattern that we need for our lives today. The time he spent talking with his heavenly Father reiterates the need for you and me as Christians. We need to spend time in prayer talking to God. Prayer isn't just a nice idea that we talk about. Prayer isn't just what the pastor does on Sunday mornings. Prayer is vital for the Christian life. And if we're honest, prayer is probably something that most of us struggle with, right? How many of you would be one to admit you've struggled to pray sometimes? You've struggled with how do I pray, what do I pray, right? Okay, I appreciate about 10 of you that are, that are honest today. And I think it's because sometimes we're, we're not really sure, like, how does this work, right? Prayer is talking to God. Prayer is, is praising him, is calling out to him, is expressing our dependence on him, is worshiping him. And if you want to see God work in your life, you need to cultivate your prayer life. You need to cultivate an active and vibrant and living prayer life. And realize this, at the end of the day, prayer will change you. Yes, it you see God answer prayer, you see God do these things, but, but what you're going to see too is God begin to change your heart and life as well. Jesus, as God, still prayed for himself and his disciples. As we turn here from this peaceful scene, you, you have, you have on, on one hand Jesus on the mountain praying to his Father, communing with God the Father. It's such a, a peaceful sight, right? It's such a wonderful thing. You turn from there and you look out into the Sea of Galilee and you see something completely different. You see the dark disturbance that's taking place out on the sea. In verses 18 through 20, then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. We see the sudden storm that takes place on the, sea of, on the Sea of Galilee. So, so now that the 12 disciples are in the boat and they're headed across the Sea of Galilee, many of those disciples are in their element. Because many of those men, Peter, James, John, Andrew, to name a few, for, you know, the four of them we know for sure, are, they, they were called out of the life of being fishermen. They grew up on the Sea of Galilee. They grew up fishing those waters. And more than that, they grew up rowing and fishing most often at night. Because that's often when the fishermen would go out to catch the fish. And so, as they're out there, and something that's not an uncommon occurrence for them, they see something else. We see something else that happens that's not uncommon. The Sea of Galilee, as it sits in the northern part of Israel, is about six to 700 feet below sea level. However, the surrounding hills that are around the Sea of Galilee, rise about 2,000 feet above sea level. So you have a 26 to 2,700 foot difference in elevation. And you know what that creates? It creates a, a wonderful opportunity for sudden storms to arise on the Sea of Galilee. You, when you read this and you think, wow, I mean, there's just like storms popping up over the place. I mean, is that like because Jesus sends it every time? Okay, God is in control of the weather. We know that, right? But he also sets the rules of how these things work. And that's exactly what happens. It's still, it's, still possible, it's still quite common today for these things to happen. Because the severe drop in elevation causes these violent winds to blow and, and the chop of the, the sea to rise. And, and Matthew and Mark record for us that the disciples 
were in the middle of the sea, fighting the waves and the winds. And the chop of the waves would have made traversing the water in such a small wooden boat difficult, if not impossible. It would be very difficult, if not impossible, for you to take a modern boat with a modern engine and and go across the ocean in a time like this. Now think about what they're in. There's a little wooden ship, and they're not going to use the sails. They're having to row across the land, the, the sea. Now, most likely, the disciples had left Jesus and begun to sail across the Sea of Galilee between 6 o'clock and 9 o'clock p.m. And now, we're told in another account that this is about the fourth watch of the night. That's what Matthew tells us. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So, the disciples left between 6 and 9, and now it's between 3 and 6 in the morning. And so, um, we learn that during this time, which is a significant amount of time, the disciples have only gone about three or four miles. Okay. Now, it's only about five miles to their destination. They were leaving from, from Bethsaida and going to Capernaum. It's only about five miles. But... When we read from the text and understand that most likely what's happened is they've drifted out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So they've gone three or four miles, but now they're out in the middle of the, they don't want to be out there, right? They're trying to get to Capernaum. The disciples are experiencing something that is not uncommon, but it is nonetheless very difficult and very trying and is very frightening. And I want us to note something here. Here are the disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, taking on water, soaked all the way to the skin, and we're going to see in a minute, scared of what's out there. That is a trial in their life, very physically. But notice this, if you will. They are not experiencing this trial out of the will of God in their lives. They did not look around and say, well, let's get out of here. We don't want to hang with Jesus anymore. Why are they in the boat? Because Jesus told them to get in the boat and go to the other side. They are obeying what Jesus, who is God, told them to do. And now they're in the middle of a storm. Understand that the trials that you experience in life are not always because you are sinning. In fact, there are times in your life, Christian, that you are in the middle of God's will doing exactly what God has called you to do and you're experiencing a trial. Well, how do I know the difference? You have to walk with God. Because I would argue that there are also times in our lives we experience trials because we sin. And we're very quick, by the way, in those moments to pin that on God, right? Well, God, you did this to me. No, actually, God says you sin, there's consequences. But there are times in our lives when we experience very difficult things, and we are, we, we, before this, we, here we were obeying God. And so now we have, to, we have to wrestle with this. Jesus is the one who initiated this move from one side to the other, and, and these men obeyed them, and now they're caught in this horrific storm. And we have to ask this question, I mean, did Jesus not know what was going to happen? Well, that's impossible. As God, he's omniscient. He knows all things. 
He knew perfectly well that when the disciples shoved off, that they were going to end up in the middle of that storm. He is the creator. He is sovereign over this world. And see, that's one of the things we wrestle with with trials in our lives. Does God not know? Does God not know what I'm going through? Does God not know that I was going to be diagnosed with that? Does God not know that I was going to lose my job? Does God not know that I was going to lose my family member? Does God not know? God knows. Just like he knew those men where they were that day. So then we wrestle with the other side. Well, does God not care? Because now you look at this and say, well, does God not, does Jesus not care for these men? Does he wish to see them struggle for their lives in the middle of the Sea of Galilee? Well, that doesn't fit with what we know about God because the scriptures tell us again and again that God is undeniably and always good. Therefore, that line of sense makes no that line of reasoning makes no sense either. Because God is never malicious in his intents towards us. What is the purpose? Well, what God does continue to seek in our lives is an increased faith and trust in him. Therefore, he will allow the storms of life to enter our lives or will bring along a trial of custom-made proportions because the trials and hardships of our life, though they're not always there because we're out of God's will, they are there to draw us closer to God. And we do well, as I said, to honestly evaluate these things in our lives and take stock of our hearts. Because though sometimes it may be because of our sin, that doesn't always have a sinful or even broken cause in our world. God, as part of our plans, as part of his plan for our lives and him, will sometimes bring trials to us to grow us in himself. And all the while, remember this, he knows the end from the beginning. Jesus knew the storm was coming. Jesus knew the disciples would be caught in it. But don't miss this. Jesus knew he'd be in the middle of the lake with them before it was all said and done. We see exactly what the disciples see next. Not only are they out there in the, in the ocean, or the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake in the sudden storm, but now they ha- there's a supernatural sighting that takes place. Did you catch that there in verse 19? So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. Wet, exhausted, frightened. I mean, this, these are all the things that the disciples are at this point, right? And then, what happens next certainly would further unnerve anyone in the same position. And again, we sit here and we're like, I mean... How can you be so, put yourself there. You're rowing, you're worried, and now you see a person walking across the water. You know, if that doesn't make you rub your eyes and be like, are you seeing this, right? You're bumping the guy next to you. You're seeing this, right? I'm like, not just hallucinating, like the fish and the bread I ate aren't just like playing tricks, right? John here doesn't focus on their felt fear, But Matthew and Mark share some of the details. Let's see what Mark says in Mark 6, verses 48 through the first part of verse 50. And he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. 
Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. That's another very interesting thing. Here are these guys fighting, and he, would have, he was walking so fast across the water, he would have walked right by them. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it to be a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. Put yourself in that boat, and your reaction wouldn't be much different. You have rode furiously, yet fruitlessly, all night, and now you see what appears to be a man walking across the surface of the water, unfazed by the storm. That's enough to make you nervous and to make you wonder, is this some sort of supernatural event? And indeed, it is a supernatural event. Because what they are observing is Jesus walking to them. And in each account of this, Jesus always identifies himself as he does here. He said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Matthew and Mark add this remark that he said to them, take courage. What he's calling for them to do is to put their trust in him. They can put their trust in their master for he has shown them his power time and again. And Matthew records for us Peter, who is ever impetuous and ever the one who who wants to be in charge and ever the one who wants to do things. This is what happens in Peter's life in Matthew chapter 14. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And Peter had, when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And when he, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus did not abandon his disciples in their hour of need. He knew exactly what would happen, precisely where they would be, and he met them there, igniting their hope with his presence. And we see them, the reception that they give to Jesus, and the dominion that's exercised by Jesus in these things, because the last thing we see here is the divine dominion of Jesus over all. In verse 21, you see first the reception of Jesus then they willingly received him into the boat. The disciples, recognizing who Jesus is, take him on board. They wanted him to be with them. They know who he is, and they trust him. In the midst of their turmoil, they embrace Jesus. In the midst of the trials of our lives, who or what we run to says a lot about our faith. And sad to say, many of us run to a lot of other things first. We run to a person, to our bank accounts. Heaven forbid we run to the internet, our own wisdom, and more. For answers to our trouble, when instead we should be seeking the wisdom and knowledge and comfort of God in his word. We should be crying out to him. Now, this does not preclude that God uses some of these very finite physical things he has given us to help us in our time of trial. You know, oftentimes I think of, I think one of the easiest things we think of with a trial is, is maybe someone has a, a debilitating disease or, or some kind of diagnosis of these sorts of things. And God 
has graciously given us things like doctors and medicine and these sorts of things to help us address these things. But understand, at the end of the day, our ultimate hope isn't in that, it's in God, who though he may work through these things, he is the one who's in control. Because at the same time, God doesn't always heal even though we, we go through these things he's given us. It is God who we run to. If the things that God has given us are our only source of answers, then you will walk an extremely dark and lonely road wondering where God is. The creation is a wonderful thing. God's wisdom applied is a wonderful thing, but it's a terrible God. It is God who we run to. And in that moment, when we look around at everything but God and we wonder where God is, we must realize God hasn't abandoned us. We have failed to turn our hearts to him. The disciples were quite literally in physical trouble. And now they had before them Jesus, who could help them more than anyone, and they took him in willingly into the boat. And we see the power displayed as Jesus is the ruler of all. Look what John says at the end of this verse. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. When Jesus enters the boat, an amazing thing happens. Let me, let me point you first to the, what Matthew and Mark say. Matthew and Mark record that as Jesus entered the boat, the wind stopped. Without a word, Jesus calmed the swirling storm. Furthermore, John records that immediately they arrived at their destination. Their boat caught in the middle of the lake at least a mile, if not more, from their destination suddenly arrived. I mean, you talk about warp speed, man. They were here, and then they were there. That's an amazing thing. That's a miracle. That's a sign of God's power. This account, if you, if you look at the full harmonized form of Matthew and Mark and John, and you look at them together, there are four miracles in one here. Okay, Number one, Jesus walks across the surface of the water to meet the disciples in the middle of the lake. Number two, Peter gets out of the boat at Jesus' command and walks across the water to Jesus. Of course, you know how that goes. We just read the passage. That's another message for another day. Number three, Jesus gets in the boat and the storm ceases. Number four, the boat arrives where it was headed to instantaneously. And this, once again, proves the deity of Jesus, and it garners the correct response from the disciples. Look what Matthew and Mark say. Matthew says in Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew says in Matthew 14.33, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Mark 6, 51b-52, And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. These two verses, or these two and a half verses, record for us exactly the response Jesus is looking for, God is looking for in our lives in the trials he brings. That we would worship him. That we would see who he is. The disciples 
like the others the previous evening, had missed the whole point of the miracle of feeding the 5,000. I think that is the most interesting, one of the most interesting phrases of, of this passage in Mark here, that they, had, that they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. They had missed the point. They too were swept up in the majesty of the Messiah, for they, but not for the salvation of men. And now Jesus had given them their own personal display of his deity that they may continue to grow in their faith in who Jesus is. And this is the grace of God in their lives and our lives as well. God does not give up on us, but he continues to grow us as we follow him. When trials come, let us seek God's help to not waste them so that we may grow ever nearer to him and experience an incredible growth in him. I told you last week, I'll tell you again, here in John chapter 6, Jesus' ministry is about to hit a critical crossroads. In the following verses, he will further clarify who he is and who those are who claim to follow him. And there will be many who have claimed to be disciples of Jesus, who in the next few verses will walk away from him. Because they hear what he has to say and say, yeah, that's not for us. We can't follow him. This sign to these 12 men will be an important point of growth in their faith. See, Jesus knows what's coming. So he's continuing to grow these so they'll follow him. Jesus knew exactly what they needed. And he knows the same of us. God will continue to grow our faith, making us more like himself which is the mission of every disciple, that we would grow and change into the likeness of our Savior. And what we see again is that Jesus' sovereign power proves he is deserving of our obedience and trust in all circumstances and situations. Jesus is Lord over creation. Everything obeys him. He proved this in his lifetime, and creation continues to prove her obedience to her creator time and again. And though corrupted by man's sin, creation is subject to the king of kings. And Jesus' display of power in this account reminds us of his power as God. And just as Jesus exercised full knowledge and control over that situation on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus has full knowledge of your life and control of the outcomes of any circumstance that you find yourself in. The consequences of your sinful choices and actions are caused by you. But he is the one who set these things up to be expected. Who do you think set up that sin brings consequences? God did. So how will you respond to the sovereignty of God in your life. If he is in control, and he is, you must answer to him. You will either believe in Jesus and accept him as Savior and Lord, or you'll reject him and you'll face eternity separated from him, experiencing the just punishment for your sin. And Christian, you will face times of tribulation and trial in your life. Some of these are due to your sin and your sinful choices that as a Christian you have chosen not to walk in the ways of God. And so he brings consequences and discipline into your life that he may draw you back into a relationship with himself. As a father disciplines his children. Sometimes 
We face some trials and tribulations in our lives because we're broken people. I am I'm not that old, but I'm reminded of this the older I get. There are some trials and tribulations in my life, trials and tribulations, I put that in huge quotation marks, because I'm just a frail human being. You know, a couple weeks ago, I got, you know, I got up in the living room on a day, I was on my day off, and my back hurts. Your back ever hurt? Because, you know, that's one of those things, it's not necessarily a trial and tribulation from God, it's just a trial and tribulation because you're a person, right? And I was like, oh, my back hurts. And all my kids are sitting on the floor, they go, oh, my back hurts. She egged him on. She's like, you should do that to dad when he comes back in here. I'm like, thanks. I tell you that just to illustrate this. There are some things in our lives that we look at like, I don't know where this comes from. It comes because we're broken people, okay? We wear out. And that, by the way, those things make us long ever more for the kingdom, right? But then there are these things, sometimes things in our lives that we cannot explain why they happen. We cannot explain why this came into my life, why this, I'm a healthy, normal human being, and this hits. I'm going along fine in my life, in my job, and this happens. And we can't explain these things. And we look at our lives, and we evaluate ourselves, and say, God, I feel like, I look at the word of God, I've been following you, I'm in the the center of your will, because the safest place you can be is in the will of God for your life, the center of God's will for your life. And we don't have any answers. So we have to trust God. All of these, whether it's sinful choices in our lives that bring consequences, whether it's things that wear out because we're broken people, or trials that God brings into our lives, all of these are opportunities to strengthen our faith and trust in God and live more for his glory. When we face consequences for sin, That is an opportunity for us to get right with God and glorify him with our lives through victory over our sin. When we we wear out and we're frail human beings and we face these these things that happen just because we live in a broken world, that's an opportunity for us to say, but I'm going to the kingdom and I'm going to live for him. And when we face these times of trial in our lives that we have no explanation for, it's an opportunity for us to draw closer to him and say, God, I don't understand, but I know who you are and I'm going to trust you. And as long as you are in God's will, following him, you can know that what he is doing in your life, he is using it for your good and his glory. And there is no safer place, as I said, to be than in the center of God's will. And my friend, I have been there. I have been in that place in your life when you feel like you're serving God and everything around you is falling apart. But God is still good. God is still in control. And he's still worth following. So don't put your eyes on the storm. And don't put your eyes on what can I do to fix it. Put your eyes on God. And follow him. And may God grant us the continued grace to trust him more. And honor him in all things. Growing ever more in him and living for his glory. Father, we thank you for your work. And we thank you for its power to change our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that you are in control of all things. Because, God, if we're honest, 
we are in control of so little, yet we like to think we're in control of everything. And we, want, we hold on for dear life to the things that we want to control. We ask that you would help us to instead rest in you, to trust you with our lives, to give you the glory and the honor that you deserve. Lord, I don't know what it is that that others are, are wrestling with in their lives. I don't know what roads they walk that maybe they have told no one else. I don't know what sin they wrestle with. I don't know what things they're facing just because we live in a broken world that's maybe causing them distress. But Lord, I know you. I know you're more than enough. I just ask today that you would minister to hearts here with us today. I ask that you would convict us of sin. You would show us our Savior and help us to trust you. Lord, we pray as we leave this place today, we would honor you and glorify you, and we ask you to bring us back tonight to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.